Chapter 15, Section 2 and 3 of J. B. Bury's The Student's Roman Empire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Morgan Scorpion. The Student's Roman Empire by John Bagnall Bury. Chapter 15, Section 2 and 3. Section 2. Administration of Claudius. Claudius endeavoured to model his statesmanship on that of Augustus. He set himself to restore the relations of cordiality which had subsisted between senate and princeps under the first emperor. The division of power between them was strictly maintained, and Claudius was prompted by his passion for antiquity to preserve the dignity of the senate. He reserved for members of the ancient order special seats in the Circus Maximus. The influence of the Senate was also increased by the rivalry which existed between the freedmen and the wives of the Emperor, each party seeking a support in the authority of the Senate. The list of the order had not been revised since the reign of Augustus, and Claudius undertook the unpopular task, which his two predecessors had admitted. The task was necessary, but like most things which Claudius did, he performed it in a manner which excited ridicule. Instead of simply assuming censorial power, he revived the office of censor, a title which Augustus had avoided, and held a lustrum. His colleague in the office was L. Vitellius. The act was harmless, but it seemed to savour of the antiquarian on the throne. And when the zealous censor issued fifty edicts in one day, there was matter for jest in Rome. But useful business was done. Many new members were admitted into the Senate, and the equestrian order was also revised. Claudius showed that he had not forgotten the land of his birth, by paying the way for extending the honorium to the three Gauls, so far as they already possessed the civitas sine suffragio. Natives of Gallia Narbonensis, of Spain and Africa, had already been admitted to the Senate and the magistracies. Claudius extended the privilege to the Edui, who, as the first Gallic allies of Rome, were called the brothers of the Roman people. This mark of favour came fitly from the son of Drusus, the brother of Germanicus, and the conqueror of Britain. The speech which Claudius pronounced on this occasion before the Senate was characteristic of the man. Two considerable fragments of it have been preserved on bronze tablets, which were dug up at Lyon, and we can judge from these remains that the oration was long and rambling, displaying knowledge of the ancient history of Rome, which bore very little on the matter in hand, and illustrating that want of sense of proportion, which made even the best acts of Claudius seem a little absurd. After a long and tedious historical disquisition, he suddenly breaks out in an address to himself which is simply grotesque. But it is high time for thee, Tiberius Caesar Germanicus, to unfold to the conscript fathers the aim of thy discourse. Like Augustus, Claudius was specially empowered by the Senate, in the year of his censorship, to increase the number of patrician families, which were gradually dwindling, with a view to the conservation of religious ceremonies. This was a work thoroughly congenial to the spirit of the antiquarian sovereign. He also received powers to enlarge the Pomoerium, so as to include the Aventine Hill, which had hitherto lain outside the limits of the city in its narrower sense. As an imitator of Augustus and a student of Etruscan archaeology, he naturally made the maintenance of religion a special care, 
and did away with the oriental rites which had come into practice at the court in the reign of gaius the jews were tolerated in rome until their seditions caused him to expel them again as they had been expelled by tiberius in the eight hundredth year of the city which fell in this reign forty seven a d claudius as pontifex maximus celebrated the ludi seculares though they had been celebrated sixty-three years before by augustus he founded a college of sixty haruspices for the official maintenance of etruscan auguries but in his zeal for religion he did not neglect the dictates of worldly wisdom and limited the number of holidays which interfered with the course of business claudius also imitated his great model in devoting himself assiduously to the administration of justice he used to sit patiently hour after hour through tedious judicial investigations in the open forum or in the basilica julia but while we may recognize his good intentions it is doubtful whether such personal activity of a sovereign in administering justice is not more harmful than beneficial he annulled the laws of treason suppressed the practice of delation and promised that no roman citizen should be submitted to the pain of torture he did away with the innovation introduced by gaius that slaves might give evidence against their masters in connection with these measures which were designed to preserve the dignity of the roman citizen it may be mentioned that he meted out strict punishment to those who claimed the franchise on false pretenses he also regulated marriages between free women and slaves and defined the legal position of their children as servile some important administrative changes were made in the reign of claudius judicial authority was committed to the procurators who managed the affairs of the fiscus in the provinces thus suits concerning fiscal debts were withdrawn from the ordinary tribunals but those who were not satisfied with the award of the imperial procurator could appeal to the emperor claudius also made new arrangements for the administration of the agrarium it will be remembered that augustus had transferred this treasury from the urban quaestors to two praetores erarii claudius restored it to the quaestors but with a modification of the old arrangement the two treasurers were selected from the quaestors not by lot but by the choice of the emperor and they held office for three years under the title of quaestores erarii saturni forty four a d the tendency to return to old constitutional forms was also manifested in the revival of the legislative power of the Comitia of the people. Some of the laws of Claudius took the form of plebiscita, but it was the unpractical experiment of an antiquarian, and all his important legislation took the form of senatus consulta. His reign was distinguished by the execution of works of public utility. He completed the aqueduct which had been begun by Gaius and left unfinished, and from him it derived the name of Aqua Claudia. A much greater work was the construction of the Portus Romanus. When Claudius came to the throne, the public granaries were empty, and Rome was threatened with a famine. The immediate necessity was relieved by extending privileges to private trade in corn, but the scarcity continued, and one of the chief and abiding causes was the want of a good haven close to Rome. The mouth of the Tiber was silted up with sand, and the corn ships from Egypt were obliged to anchor at Puteoli. Claudius supplied this great want by making a new haven, a little above the well-nigh deserted port of Ostia, and connected with the river by an artificial channel. This haven was formed by two immense moulds built out into the sea, and a lighthouse was erected at the entrance. This undertaking involved a large outlay, but it was of great and permanent utility. 
a still faster enterprise was the draining of the Fukine Lake in the land of the Marsi, but the cost and the labour were not recompensed by the results. The agriculture of the Marsians suffered constantly from the swelling of the waters of the lake, and Claudius undertook to hinder this calamity by constructing a tunnel three miles in length through Monte Solviano to carry away the overflow into the river Liris. The work of thirty thousand men for eleven years, forty-one to fifty-one A.D., was spent on this design, but the tunnel did not prove permanently efficient, like that which drained the Alban lake. Claudius celebrated the completion of the work by a mimic naval battle on the lake, like one which Augustus had exhibited in an artificial basin in the Trans-Tibertine suburb of Rome, but on a much larger scale. Claudius equipped vessels of three and four banks of oars, with nineteen thousand men. He lined the shores of the lake with a continuous platform of rafts to prevent the galley slaves from escaping, but full space was left for the operations of a sea-fight. Divisions of Praetorian cohorts and cavalry were posted on the rafts, with a breastwork in front of them, from which they could direct missiles against any of the naval gladiators who tried to escape. An immense multitude of people, both from Rome and the neighbouring towns, had gathered, both to see the wondrous spectacle and to show their respect for the emperor, and the banks, the slopes, and the hilltops were crowned with spectators, so that the scene resembled a vast theatre. The emperor dressed in a splendid military cloak, Paludamentum, and his wife Agrippina, also wearing a military cloak, presided. Though the combatants were condemned criminals, they fought bravely, and when much blood had been shed, they were allowed to separate. The story is told that when they saluted Claudius with the words Ave Imperator, Moratore te salutant, Hail Emperor, men doomed to die greet thee, he answered with Alt non, or not, doomed to die, and they taking the words as a pardon, refused to fight. Claudius at first thought of having them all massacred, but afterwards, going round in person, induced them to fight by threats and exhortations. Section 3. The Provinces under Claudius The gradual elevation of the provinces to a political equality with Italy is one of the features of the imperial period. The extension of the Jus Honorum to Gaul, which has been already mentioned, was an important step in this direction, and the reign of Claudius was marked by a tendency to bestow the Roman citizenship on provincial communities. He was ridiculed, in a humorous satire written after his death by the philosopher Seneca, for having resolved to see all the Greeks, Gauls, Spaniards, and Britons dressed in the Roman toga. He introduced many changes in the administration of the subject lands, both the provinces and the dependent kingdoms. In the north, the empire gained a new province by the conquest of Britain, which will be recounted in another chapter, and this led to an increase of the army by two new legions. The Praetorian cohorts were also increased in this reign from nine to twelve. Mauritania had to be conquered anew at the other extremity of the empire. The inhabitants had rushed to arms after the execution of their king Ptolemy, under the leadership of Edmond, one of his freedmen. The governor, Publius Gabinius, was not equal to coping with the rebellion, but his successor, C. Suetonius Paulinus, who became famous afterwards by his campaign in Britain, crossed Mount Atlas and went as far south as the river Gear, reducing the Maurusian tribes, 42 AD. This expedition, however, was not decisive, and the struggle seems to have lasted until 45 AD, when Lucius Galba, who was afterwards emperor, became proconsul of Africa, and C. N. Hosidius Geta commanded in Numidia. 
When order was restored, chiefly through the energy of Geta, Mauritania was divided into two provinces, separated by the river Matua. The western was distinguished as Tingitana, from the town Tingi, the eastern as Caesariensis, from the town Jol Caesarea. Each was governed by a procurator, but in case of necessity they were united under the authority of a legatus. Another change in the western half of the empire was the enlargement of the little prefecture of the Cotian Alps, and the elevation of its prefect, Julius Cotius, to the rank of king. Claudius conquered Britain, but he did not essay the other enterprise which had once seemed expedient for the protection of Gaul. He did not try to repeat the conquest of Germany, which had busied his father Drusus and his brother Germanicus. There was, however, in his reign, some fighting beyond the Rhine. Domitius Corbulo, an able soldier, the rival of Suetonius Paulinus, was appointed legatus of Lower Germany. He was the half-brother of Caesonia, the wife of Gaius, in whose reign he had been entrusted with the task of inspecting the condition of the roads in Italy. On reaching the Rhine, he set himself to check the piracy which had been practised in recent years by the German peoples along the coast of the North Sea. He punished the Frisians, who had refused to pay the stipulated tribute, and made an expedition against the Chorki, 47 AD, who had dared to make incursions into the lower province. But as he was about to establish a fortress in the land of that people, he received orders from the emperor to desist from his undertaking, and leave the Chorsi to themselves. The enemies of Corbulo had represented that he was only seeking his own glory. But in any case, it was the policy of the government at this time to keep the Germans in order by diplomacy rather than by arms. Thus the Cheruski, who had degenerated since the days of Arminius, besought the emperor to provide them with a chief. Claudius sent Italicus, the son of Flavus, and the nephew of Arminius. For a time the youth was popular, but he soon became suspected and disliked on account of his Roman manners, and had great difficulty in maintaining his position. This was just what Rome desired. It was her policy to promote discord and dissension among the Germans. Corbulo returned to his province disgusted and disappointed. How happy were the Roman commanders in old days, he is reported to have murmured when he received the imperial command. As the soldiers were not to fight, he employed them in the task of cutting a great canal, connecting the Mosa, Mars, with the northern branch of the Rhine, parallel to the coast. This supplied the place of a road, and has lasted till the present day, running from Rotterdam to Leiden. The reign of Claudius was also distinguished in the history of the Rhinelands by the elevation of the Oppidum Ubiorum to the rank of a military colony. 50 A.D., Colonia Claudia Agrippinensis, called after his fourth wife, the Empress Agrippina, who was born there. Colonia, as it was simply called, and is still called so in the form of Cologne or Cologne, became an important centre of Roman civilization. It is possible that another illustrious Roman colony, Augusta Treverorum, Trier, on the Mosul, was also founded under the auspices of Claudius. One work which had been begun by his father it devolved upon him to complete. This was the great road connecting Italy with the upper Danube, passing over the Brenner Alps, the Via Claudia Augusta. There were also hostilities in the upper province during the reign of Claudius. It was found necessary to make an expedition against the Chatti, and the last of the three eagles lost by Varus was on this occasion recovered. Some years later, 50 A.D., Predatory bands of Chatti invaded the province, 
which was then governed by Publius Pomponius Secundus. He ordered the Bangiones and the Nemetes, tribes which dwelled on the left bank of the Rhine about Borbetomagus, Worms, and Nubiomagus, Speyer, along with the auxiliary cavalry, to intercept the retreat of the invaders and attack them while they were dispersed. The troops were divided into two columns. One of these cut off the plunderers on their return, when after a carouse they were heavy with sleep, and some survivors of the disaster of Varus were delivered from captivity. The other column inflicted greater loss on the foe in a regular battle, and returned laden with spoil to Mount Taunus, where Pomponius was waiting with his legions. The triumphal ornaments were decreed to Pomponius, who, however, was more celebrated for his poems than for his military achievements. On the Pannonian frontier, Claudius was called upon to intervene in the affairs of the Suevi. After the overthrow of Maroboduus, Vanius had been recognized as king of the Suevic realm, which included Bohemia in the land of the Marcomanni, and also the modern Moravia in the land of the Quadi. For about thirty years Vanius reigned in great prosperity, popular with his countrymen, whom he enriched by plunder and the tribute of subject tribes. But long possession made him a tyrant, and domestic hatred, combined with the enmity of neighboring peoples, proved his ruin. In 50 AD a plot was formed for his overthrow by his nephews Vangio and Sido, who were supported by Vibilius, king of the Hermann Duri, a people who lived west of Bohemia. Claudius declined to send Roman troops to protect his vassal, and would only promise a safe refuge to Vanius in case he were expelled. But he instructed Palpelius Hister, the legatus of Pannonia, to have his legions with some chosen auxiliaries posted along the banks of the Danube, as a rule their station was on the drive, to be a support to Vanius if he were conquered, and a terror to the conquerors. The enemies of Vanius were supported by an immense force of Lugii, a Suevic tribe which probably dwelled in modern Silesia. To oppose this large force, Vanius had obtained some cavalry from the Yazigis, a Sarmatian race who lived between the Danube and the Thais, to support his own infantry. He wished to protract the war by maintaining himself in fortresses, but the Yazigis, who could not endure a siege, brought on an engagement. Vanius was compelled to come down from his forts, and was defeated. He then fled to the Roman fleet on the Danube, and grants of land in Pannonia were assigned to him and his followers. Vangio and Sido divided his kingdom, and remained loyal to Rome. In the east, the list of provinces was augmented by the conversion of the kingdom of Thrace into a province governed by a procurator, 46 AD. The free confederation of the cities of Lycia was also abolished, and that country united to the province of Pamphylia, 43 AD. This measure led to the complete Hellenization of Lycia. Macedonia and Achaea, which Tiberius had placed under the common control of an imperial legatus, were restored by Claudius to the Senate, and again governed by Praetorian proconsuls. Now that Moesia was separately administered, they were girt round by a chain of frontier provinces which secured them against hostile inroads, so that they could be safely entrusted to the Senate. The affairs of the small dependent kingdoms in the east were ordered anew. Antiochus IV was restored to the throne of Camagueni, which Gaius had given him and then capriciously taken away. Special attention was attracted to the kingdom of Bosporus and the northeastern shores of the Exene. The history of these regions is so little known that the glimpse of them which we get now is welcome. In 41 AD, Claudius transferred the kingdom of Bosporus, 
which Gaius had bestowed on Polemo, to a certain Mithridates, who claimed to be descended from the great opponent of Rome, and Polemo received some districts in Cilicia as a compensation. But a few years later, 45 AD, he was deposed for what reason is unknown, and his brother, a youth named Cotis, was set up in his stead and at first supported by a considerable Roman force under Aulus Didius Gallus, who was probably governor of Moesia. When the Romans departed, leaving only a few cohorts under a knight named Julius Aquila, Mithridates saw his opportunity. Collecting a band of men who were exiles like himself, he overthrew the king of the Dandaridae, a people which dwelled under the Hippanis, the Cuban, and established himself as ruler over them. Cotis and Aquila were alarmed at the prospect of an invasion by Mithridates at the head of the Dandarids, especially as the Siraci, another obscure people of those regions, had assumed a hostile attitude. Accordingly they sought the alliance of Eunones, king of the Aorsi, another race whose exact home is uncertain. It was resolved to anticipate the designs of the dethroned king of Bosphorus by attacking him in his new Dandarid realm. The army of Cotis consisted of the Roman cohorts, native Bosphoran troops, and cavalry supplied by Eunones. Mithridates, having no adequate forces to oppose to this attack, was defeated, and Sosa, the town of Dandarica, was occupied by the invaders. The victors then proceeded against the Siraci and laid siege to their town, named Uspi, which was built on high ground and also fortified by art. The place was easily taken, and the inhabitants, although they had offered submission, were massacred. After the fall of Uspi, the king of the Siraci deserted the cause of Mithridates, and frustrated himself before the image of the emperor. The Romans were very proud of this expedition. They had advanced within three days' journey to the banks of the Tanais, which in their geography was regarded as one of the limits of the known world. But as they returned by sea, some ships were wrecked on the shores of the Tauri, and the barbarians slew one of the prefects and some of the soldiers. For Mithridates it only remained to throw himself on the mercy of some protector. Not trusting his brother Cotis, and there being no Roman officer of influence on the spot, he gave himself up to Eunones, king of the Aorsi. Eunones undertook his cause, and sent envoys to Claudius, begging mercy for the captive. After some hesitation, the emperor decided on exercising clemency. Mithridates once conducted to Rome, and is said to have spoken bold words in the imperial presence. I have returned to you of my own free will. If you do not believe it, let me go, and look for me. The fate of Mithridates is uncertain, but he was probably kept, like Maraboduus, in some Italian city. But the most important change was the restoration of the kingdom of Herod. Judea, which since his death had been governed by a Roman procurator, was given along with Samaria to his grandson Agrippa, who had played a prominent part in securing the accession of Claudius. This change was at least as much a matter of policy as a reward to Agrippa. It was intended to soothe the bad feeling against the Roman government which had been stirred up among the Jews under the reign of Gaius. Two edicts were issued, according, first to the Jews of Alexandria, and then to the Jews of the whole empire, the free exercise of their worship. Agrippa was very popular with the Jews, and he was also popular with the Greeks. At Jerusalem he was a Jew, at Caesarea he was a Gentile. On two occasions the governor of Syria, Bibius Marsus, was obliged to interfere with his policy. 
in 42 AD to prevent him from fortifying the new town of Jerusalem, and in the following year to put a stop to a suspicious congress of kings, Antiochus of Comagene, Cotis of Little Armenia, Sampsigurum of Emesa, Paleno of Pontus, who had assembled at Tiberias to meet Agrippa. But the restored kingdom of Judea was of short duration. Agrippa died, eaten up of worms, in 44 AD, and his son, who was kept as a hostage at Rome, was not deemed competent to succeed him. Judea was placed again under the government of a procurator, but to assuage the discontent of the Jews and prevent disturbances, the nomination of the high priest and the administration of the treasure of the temple were not assigned to him, but to King Herod of the Syrian Chalcis, a brother of Agrippa. At this time Judea was much disturbed by brigands as well as by the fanatical hatred of the Jews against the pagans, and the constant interference of the governor of Syria was required. The administration of Judea was one of the most difficult problems that the Romans had to deal with, and they committed the error of not stationing sufficiently large military forces in that province. In 53 AD, Claudius granted immunity from tribute to the island of Cos, as a personal favour to his physician Xenophon, who belonged to the Asclepidae, a family of medical priests who lived in that island. The emperor made one of his characteristic speeches in the senate, going into the ancient history of the Coans, and then letting out the true motive of his proposal by mentioning Xenophon, their distinguished countryman. About the same time, tribute was remitted for five years to Byzantium, which had suffered severely from the Bosporan War and from disturbances in Thrace when that country was made a province. The history of the war in Armenia must be reserved for another chapter. It may be asked how far the administration of the empire was guided by the mind of Claudius, and how far the measures of his reign were due to his advisers. On this it is impossible to speak with certainty. There is a curious contrast between his rather ridiculous personality and the not inconsiderable positive results of his reign. However much he owed to his able counsellors, it is certain that he impressed many of his measures with his personal stamp. If he was weak-minded, easily influenced by women and freedmen, immoderate in sensual indulgence, and fond of wine and gambling, it must not be forgotten that he was well educated. Nor is it fair to blame him for the prominent part which the freedmen of his household played in the administration of the state. It must be remembered that the emperor had neither official ministers nor a regular civil service at his disposal. He was supposed to be his own secretary of state and his own treasurer, and he was therefore obliged to have recourse to the services of his freedmen for carrying on the business of the state. Augustus himself had depended on freedmen after the death of his advisers Agrippa and Massinus. Tiberius and Gaius also employed them, but did not admit them to their confidence. They occupied, however, such a position that their influence over weak-minded princeps was almost a matter of course. This happened in the case of Claudius. He needed counsellors to lean upon, and the freedmen were there at his hand. His most trusted advisers were Narcissus, who held the post of Ab Epistolis, or secretary, Pallas, who was the Aurationibus, or steward and accountant, Callistus, the, the Alabellis, who received all petitions preferred to the emperor, and Polybius, who assisted his master in his studies, and had himself won a place in literature by translating Homer into Latin and Virgil into Greek. These Greeks were well-educated men, capable and versatile, and it would be an error of prejudice to ridicule the government of Claudius as being conducted by a company of menials. 
they were doubtless far more competent to perform the duties of their offices and to advise the emperor than the officials of equestrian and senatorian rank but in consequence of their position they were overbearing and avaricious having no social position they sought a compensation in amassing wealth and their administration was consequently marked by the grossest corruption they sold appointments to the highest bidders they compassed the confiscation of the estates of nobles on false or frivolous charges they extorted bribes by threats end of chapter fifteen sections two and three